Walter Lenore was a substantial slaveholder in North Carolina before the Civil War, but he didn't like slavery. He was ready to sell out and move north, and then something happened that made him a fervent Confederate. What was it? We'll find out when we return on Civil War Talk Radio. On Sound Authors, you can expect the unexpected. Kent Gustafson, Ph.D., author, publisher, professional musician, and now talk radio show host, will not only entertain you, but with new books and guest authors from around the world, will interview talented, independent musicians showcasing their fresh new music. Plan to join Dr. Kent and friends each Friday morning at 10 a.m. Pacific, 1 p.m. Eastern, on World Talk Radio Studio A. Sound Authors, where authors sound off. What's it like? What's it like? It's lonely. It's really lonely. I miss my brother. I miss my brother. I'm surrounded by other people, but it's not the same. I've got other people around me, but it's not the same. It's pretty scary, but I don't let it rattle me. It's scary around here, but I don't let it rattle me. You always have to watch your back. There's no one to watch my back. I spend my whole day worried who's out to get me. I'm always wondering who's out to get me. But I can take care of myself. But I can take care of myself. No matter what, I'll keep my head up. No matter what, I'll keep my head up. It's not like I have a choice. It's not like I have a choice. This will all be over in five years, three months, and 17 days. This will all be over in five years, three months, and 17 days. Go to jail for a gun crime and your family serves a sentence with you. Something to think about before committing a gun crime. Gun crimes hit home. This message brought to you by Project Safe Neighborhoods and the Ad Council. Once upon a time, there lived three energy hogs. Now, an energy hog is what you have when humans waste energy. One day, the three energy hogs set out to find themselves a cottage. Let's look for leaky windows, said the first energy hog, for he knew that would waste energy. Let's look for leaky doors, said the second. Let's look for a swing set, said the third, for he had more blubber than brains. So they set off down the road. Presently, they came upon a tiny cottage where dwelled a clever girl named Dreadylocks. I hope it has leaky windows, cried the first energy hog. I hope it has leaky doors cried the second. I hope he had the bathroom, cried the third, for only his brains were smaller than his bladder. But Dreadilocks liked playing cool games at energyhog.org. And from energyhog.org, she learned how to use energy wisely. So the three energy hogs were forced to look elsewhere to waste energy and had to use the disgusting restroom at the gas station down the road. And the moral of the story is, to use energy wisely, log on to energyhog.org or waste not, hog not. This public service message brought to you by the U.S. Department of Energy and the Ad Council. World Talk Radio, bringing the world to you. Welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, talking today with William L. Barney, author of The Making of a Confederate, Walter Lenore's Civil War. It's a recent book published this year, 2008, by Oxford University Press. And, uh, Bill, I want to say uh, this is really a very attractive book. Uh, oh, thank you. It or is. thank my publisher. <laughs> well, they did a wonderful job with it. it it's a uh, small size. You can put it in the backpack or tuck it away, and uh, it's very handsome and well-produced. It's, uh, oh, thank you. A lot of publishers these days started sending books. I'm, I'm dunning my audience less for donations because publishers uh, occasionally will send books to me hoping that they'll... Uh, I guess get a guest on on the show, 
And I have to get some pretty crummy books, actually. <laughs> some books from some rather marginal publishers. Uh, Oxford University, on the other hand, is, is at the other end of the scale. This is a really nice book. And, uh, Good to hear. Again, uh, thanks. It, it's, uh, but, uh, of course, it is what, what's between the covers that counts. Um, one thing I wanted to ask you about, it's in a uh, series called New Narratives in American History. That's correct. Do you know anything about that series? Well, they started uh, the series about two years ago at Oxford, the purpose being to have historians write readable, stressing the word readable, readable stories of a significant historical theme that would be uh, uh, relatively brief, um, would draw the reader in, would keep the academic paraphernalia to an absolute minimum, and then after the story is told, use uh, the end matter, the appendix, to draw the reader into uh, the, uh, how the story was conceived in the first place and what an historian actually does when he tries to build a narrative. But the stress was on brevity and readability. Well, it, it achieves both of those. And I'm, I teach public history courses here, and I'm always talking with my colleagues about the importance of connecting with the public that if, if we spend too much time writing just for one another in, in journals that nobody else reads, uh, at some point uh, the, the public is going to withdraw their support from the whole yeah. enterprise. I mean, history is still an incredibly uh, attractive topic for the, for the general public. Yeah. <clears throat> Anything around an interesting theme that is well-written uh, typically does very, very well if it's marketed correctly, and they, and they really crave it, but it, it has to be readable. It has to be built around a story. Cause that's and, and that's what we have here. We've got a, a story. We t started in our first segment talking about the, the Lenore clan in North Carolina uh, from the era of the Revolution on down. Uh, the general has his uh, eight or nine children. The, the various boys go off and try to make their own way. Um, uh, Walter, the one who becomes the focus of our story, uh, it doesn't even uh, seem to want to continue to be a slaveholder. Uh, no, Walter, uh, actually, of the uh, so, uh, the grandsons of the generals, uh, those who uh, were of uh, military age <clears throat> or over by the time of the outbreak of the Civil War, uh, what I found so fascinating about them, and there were four sons, was they just complicate and mess up our traditional narrative on how southern white males reacted to secession and, and the war. Uh, the oldest son was uh, named after his grandfather, William. Uh, the oldest son was, oh, he's probably pushing 50 when the war broke out. He committed suicide. Uh, he had overcommitted himself in land speculation and money that he had loaned out and uh, the uh, secession crisis provoked an immediate uh, money crunch, uh, and he thought he'd be ruined, and he thought the war would turn out badly, and the eldest son, literally right next door under, uh, I think it was an apple tree, committed suicide with a shotgun, and uh, the second eldest son, who was about 40 when the war broke out, he ran the family's plantation in the mountains out in Haywood County. He was Tom Lenore. And Tom immediately raised a volunteer company from Haywood County, uh, fought, uh, well, saw service predominantly on the South Carolina coast. He was not in the battle, 
But after his 12-month uh, service was up, Tom returned home, and the draft couldn't touch him initially because of his age, and Tom sat out the rest of the war, although he would lead uh, bands of uh, Confederates trying to round up deserters in the Carolina-Tennessee mountains. Uh, Walter was the uh, third youngest son. He was about uh, 37 when the war broke out, and he was the most unlikely of all of them to fight. Uh, he was frail, nearsighted, was viewed as the scholar. Uh, the one who physically should have been the brave Confederate soldier was the youngest son, Rufus. But Rufus ran the family plantation uh, known as Fort Defiance in Caldwell County. Rufus sat out the entire war. So of the, of the four, the only one who became our image of the uh, uh, committed Confederate soldier was, was Walter. And, and that seems ironic because yeah. just before the war, uh, Walter went so far as to go north and, and look for land where he could move out of North Carolina, out of yeah. slavery altogether. Well, that was the puzzle that uh, sort of hooked me on the uh, Lenore story. I didn't initially set out with any intention of writing a biography of him. I was simply gathering material on wartime letters for a um, website mounted by the... Uh, uh, by the University of North Carolina documenting the American South, and this was the one on the Confederate home front. And in the midst of going through some of the Lenore family letters, on one hand I discovered that hey, Walter didn't like slavery at all. In fact, he's one of those real rarities, uh, a Southerner who actually denounced the institution as wrong. And next thing I find out, he was this really committed Confederate soldier. So... That was that was that was the hook. How can I how can I explain Walter's story? And once he committed himself to the Confederacy, uh, he was a diehard Confederate down to the day that he died in 1891. Well, before the war, as a slaveholder, as you point out he, he denounced the institution. He, he said it was not moral. Um, why didn't he just uh, emancipate his slaves then? Well, Walter was torn, very, very ambivalent. Uh, again, he was raised in this uh, slaveholding clan, one of the most prominent political, social families in the western half of the state. Had a tremendous sense of obligation to his parents. Uh, for example, when he was sent to UNC, he was the only son who received a college education. Uh, he felt he felt guilty that uh, he was enjoying himself and he loved studying, but he wasn't paying his parents back, and he was set to quit, but his father and the president at the time, David Swain, talked him out of it. Uh, he graduated valedictorian of the class of 43, but stayed only because he said, well, I'm going to go into law after this, and I'll make some money, and I'll be able to repay the family for all they had done for me. Uh, but he didn't like law, practice in the mountains in the West. It took him about 10 years before he could become relatively self-sufficient from his law practice alone. Uh, as soon as he did so, he then, well, married. He married a cousin, uh, Cornelia Christian was her name. And then for the first time, Walter actually supervised slaves. Uh, Walter didn't work, in the, uh, didn't supervise slaves in the, on the plantation, benefited from them, obviously, and sold some off when he came into his inheritance in the 1850s. But he, he really had no direct daily contact with the institution. And very soon after he did, uh, both he and his wife came to the same, same conclusion. And this is a letter that Walter wrote, I think, in 1857, that they both had come to the conclusion that slavery uh, 
was morally wrong and tainted everyone who who was any part of the institution at all, and that they had committed themselves as soon as they could to uh, selling the slaves that Walter had inherited and leaving the uh, leaving the South. But within months of writing that letter, uh, the identity Walter hoped to establish as a, a married uh, father and husband came crashing down when his wife and infant daughter rapidly died almost at the same time, and he was crushed. And it was in this context that he emerged from his depression by traveling north in the fall of 60, had his land picked out way up in the Minnesota Territory, and he obviously never made it up there, because when he was planning on leaving, the secession crisis broke out. It's one of those things, I'd, reading about how uh, Walter and, and some other people you, you mentioned uh, had anti-slavery feelings. This is not universal, but, or even a majority view, but there were some who did. Uh, but they couldn't act on it. Um, you talk about how if you sell... Uh, you could sell your slaves, and that divests you of the. You could, the yeah, divest. But what happens to the slaves? Yeah, but it, then you'd probably be, at least your impression would be, you would be submitting them to a worse fate. Exactly. Because uh, you wanted to be as benevolent as you could, and it was very difficult simply to free them, because by, oh, 1830s and 40s, in every southern state, what formerly had been a relatively easy process, the private freeing of slaves known as manumission, was extremely difficult. Uh, amongst other things, you had to provide money to settle any freed slaves out of the state. And that meant out of the South. And not all northern states were all that hospitable to welcoming uh, African Americans, whether free or slave. But it was a very difficult uh, process. And um, unless um, one made very thorough arrangements, then it was not a very easy thing to do. Well, it's one of those things where you can really see in your book how one could, you know, soothe one's own conscience if you were a slaveholder by saying, I'm yeah. the best slaveholder, uh, and so if I sell these people, it'll just be worse for them. Mm-hmm. So even though I'm against it, the best thing for me to do is keep them. Yeah, that was the sort of the easy moral um, middle ground to find for yourself. That it was a necessary evil. Uh, if it was up to me, I would never own any slaves, but I inherited them. They're part of my culture. And even if I wanted to give them freedom, um, given um, I can't simply free them without an immense financial uh Sacrifice and where would I settle them? Now, a way of, uh, that a lot of planters and slaveholders in the Upper South, where it's still possible, dealt with this was by being supporters of the American Colonization Society, and the purpose of which, of course, was to settle freed slaves in Africa, specifically Liberia. But uh, attitudes that's so hardened by the middle of the 19th century that Barring the true minority of slaveholders, the Grimke sisters, daughters of the very wealthy uh, Charleston slave owner, and a handful of uh, well-known southern-born white abolitionists, um, most southern whites who had doubts about the institution settled them by saying, well, I could probably do better by them than anyone else could. And, and Walter Lenore certainly does this. But then, as you say, uh, just before he, he buys the land or before he moves to Minnesota, 
the war breaks out. Well, first, the secession crisis. Uh, yes. Of course, Lincoln's election, South Carolina leads the cotton states out of the Union. And Walter was a committed Unionist. Walter wanted nothing to do with the original Confederacy, uh, which is true of most whites in the Upper South, in that they saw the original Confederacy as dominated by arrogant, aristocratic cotton planters whose agenda would not necessarily conform to that what would be best for the Upper South. They feared they'd reopen the African slave trade, uh, commit the South to free trade, which would destroy what industry there was in the, in, the, in the Upper South. And plus, they just thought that they were arrogant and hasty, that there was no need to rush off half-cocked, that if Lincoln indeed made an overt move against slavery, then it was time to get out. So Walter, in fact, he attended unionist meetings in, in Caldwell County, has a very interesting correspondence with uh, the future governor, Zebulon Vance, who essentially agreed with Walter's political views. But everything changed when Lincoln issued that call for troops after the firing on Fort Sumter. That was the trigger for Walter and probably for most whites in the Upper South, who initially had rejected immediate secession uh, by about a margin of two to one. But Walter interpreted uh, Lincoln's call for troops, as did most uh, whites in the Upper South, as a declaration of war. Declaration of war, my God, uh, invading Yankee armies are going to come down here, and uh, uh, they're not only going to set off uh, mayhem with slave uprisings, they're going to threaten our homes, our wives, our property. And uh, Walter had something very akin to a conversion, literally a conversion. He, he, he described himself as wrestling with himself for about 20, 25 minutes. He breaks out in a cold sweat, and then he finally said that I knew what I had to do. And then, everything that I had in life, everything that I owe, uh, that I have, I owe to my parents, the South, and the culture, I must protect it. But it, it really, it's a dramatic moment in the book. It's like flipping a switch when he yeah. suddenly goes over. We'll take another short break. We'll come back and talk about Walter Lenore's wartime career, what he does in the war and, and after it, if we have time. Today we're talking with William L. Barney, author of uh, The Making of a Confederate, Walter Lenore's Civil War. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, and we'll be right back on Civil War Talk Radio. Mm-hmm. 